Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Would like to frame this today. I have some thoughts, but I'd be curious what you're thinking about too. Well, I have worked some today on um, at least preparing an initial part introduction draft for Sunday, which is a very, very long quote, um, longer than I normally do, Mm -hmm. from Joan Chittister about politics and religion. Because um, I can't think of a time in our recent country's history where we didn't need to have a, a really great conversation about politics and religion. We're up to dealing with the beatitude this Sunday. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the word righteous just has placed to such bad reviews. Right. The word righteous in this context means justice. Yeah. So I made a huge mistake last night. <laughs> I watched the news last night. Oh. Yeah, you never talk about that. Oh, it's awful. The guy who is the uh, head of whatever department that is governing the CDC is Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm. Have you seen the article that was on the front page of the New York Times today? No, I have not. Is crazy. And then I saw about all the wildfires in the west part of the country. And then I saw, in spite of the newscaster saying, now what you're about to see is very disturbing. I watched it anyway. That person who ran up to the car and shot those two police officers in California and then oh, ran away. It, yeah. just, it was not a good thing for me to do to watch the news. No. That sounds awful. I actually hadn't heard of that last story. Um, and certainly anytime we fight violence with violence, it creates more of the same. Uh, that's coming from the law enforcement side of things as well as the protesting side of things um, or the, the counter-protesting side of things. Anytime we approach violence with violence, it fans the flame. My wife one time asked me, why do we kill people who kill people to teach them and it's not okay to kill people? Right. Fear, to put fear in the other people who are watching. Wonder how well that's working for us. (laughs) So did you read Ilya Delio's big long blog today? I didn't read that either. I've been teaching fourth and fifth grade all day. With my well, I ended up not actually reading all of it because I, I'm, uh, it was too long and I didn't have the time, but I planned to read it later. But she had a line in there that really struck me as being something that you and I should talk about and play with. She said that, uh, that uh, people who protest, who have a legitimate right to protest, yeah. uh, create another binary system another dualistic system. 
And what the protesters and the people who are being protested really need to do is to get together and do something together instead of throwing insults at each other or throwing charges at each other. And she cited as an example a group of Palestinians and a group of Israelis who got together and created an orchestra. Oh, yes. So that yeah. people on opposing sides were creating something together. So it's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about two shapes. I was thinking about a line which places people at opposite ends of the spectrum, right? And when we're at opposite ends of the spectrum, no matter which way we turn, we can't see each other. We can't, we can't turn and look. Um, but if you take a line and you bend it, it becomes a circle. And then the folks who were on opposite end of the spectrum are back to back. And then they can turn around and they can see each other. They can look at each other. They have the experience of what Martin Buber would say is the I thou, right? When I look into your eyes, I can see myself. And the, you know, it is so when we can turn and look, there's more opportunity for an embedded experience. Um, and sometimes we need the line because sometimes the line shows us where the anger is coming from. And sometimes the work happens in the messy middle. You know, the, the messy middle is going, well, I'm a little closer to this end of the line and you're a little closer to this end of the line. How do we sort of bring this together? So it kind of, um, you know, it's hard for me to say I would want those who are protesting to stop protesting. What I more want to say is I want those who are being protested against so for example, unfair systems, I want them to be the ones that stop and listen. That's not necessarily a fair request to ask one to stop and listen and the other to keep protesting, but I don't think protests arise out of thin air. I think they arise out of exhaustion and mm -hmm. fatigue. Well, we have an opportunity this Sunday to talk about some of this and about how it got set up. Um, and this is all done by white male patriarchy in the Western world, not just in America, but in the Western world. And right. um, how, how it got to be that the model that you describe as being the one that Jesus lived in and spoke against, where there was one or two powerful people at the top of the pyramid, how that got to be the model for this country, because that's the way it is. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been the model for every dominator system. And until that changes, we're going to keep getting what we got, I fear. Yeah. But I do just keep imagining that triangle opening into a vessel. And, you know, you know how when 
you watch dust in the sunlight, how the dust just seems to like, it sort of floats in unison and it's dissipating at the same time. Mm -hmm. I imagine people needing to be like dust a little bit, floating in unison in the light and dissipating at the same time. Well, according to the Bible, that's all we are. <laughs> we are just dust. What does that Thich Nhat Hanh say that, you know, we're like 80% non-human elements. So yeah. it really gets at what is the human element? And you wonder, we talked about this a little bit last um, week, is the human element, the consciousness of being able to make love. So in my own spiritual practice this morning as part of the reading part of that, I just happened to pick up the... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh book on the Buddhist path and read again what I've read in numerous places over the years, the importance of practicing, by which I mean both experiencing and expressing those four immeasurables of compassion and peace and joy and equanimity and how we need to experience these things for ourselves and then to express them in ways that they can be embraced by other people. And that's very hard right now because there's so much anger and there's so much fear in the world. Um, and so much yeah. distraction. I, I, I watched the, the news photographs last night of the fires in, uh, in the West Coast. And they're not just contained to Florida, mm -hmm. uh, to California. They're Washington, Oregon, Colorado. They're, they're just awful. Yeah. Whole communities have been burned down. By, by that, I mean entire towns. Yeah. Houses, schools, hospitals, churches, stores, everything. It's just awful. Yeah. I cannot not think about James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, right? I've heard so many people refer to this time as the fire this time. And it just, the, the devastation of fire is never small. The, the towns and the schools and the people and the animals and the ecology, the ecological damage that fires do also. Um, is huge, but there is of course always also a renewal aspect of the fire. And that renewal aspect of fire is beautiful and more rich and more nutritious, right? The soil becomes uh, blacker, more rich, the, the, the greens of the new plants grow more fertile and more plentiful, but the devastation is impossible to reconcile with in our, in our sort of feeble minds, right? I love this very last quote from the fire next time. That's what I was looking for. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of others, do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country 
and change the history of the world. If we do not now dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible in song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. Wow. And that's what's happening. I mean, I know this is not the first time in history that the fire has been so big, but the fire is big right now. It is. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that we are on the verge of experiencing, and again, this is not the first time this has happened in history either, is if a system does not provide empowerment for the people who make the system possible, Mm -hmm. the system will eventually collapse. Absolutely. And I think that we may be on the verge of experiencing that unless we come to our collective good sense and say, hey, wait a minute. We can't keep doing what we're doing and expect this this to work for us. Yeah, yeah. When I was a classroom teacher, um, you know, I, I taught middle and high school for 12 years. I've, I work with teachers now. Um, my philosophy of teaching has always been that if you can find a way to run your classroom that works for the students who are struggling the most, who are um, maybe the lowest academic performers or the hardest behavioral students, then it will work for all. And we can translate that into societies by saying, you know, most people follow most of the rules or most of the guidelines most of the time. And there's a few that don't, right? There's a few that kind of are intentional rabble rousers. And we need some rabble rousers rousers to kind of go, we got to change this. We got to light the fire. But if we think about who's on the bottom of our society, what in Jesus's time in the pyramid that I created were called, those who were called the expendables. If we created a society that worked for the expendables, mm-hmm. that whole pyramid shifts. It's turned on its head and suddenly we have the funnel and suddenly it's, it's being filled up as opposed to drained out to a top single point. It's so necessary that we make systems that work for those who, have, who are not seen or who are not represented but who are as you say the backbone of a society and and we need to face the fact that this is terrifying to those at the top it is so much so that they will do almost anything to keep it from happening Mm -hmm. to their detriment yeah and uh i'm not i'm not sure how we um get into addressing that in a way that causes everybody to feel um, cared for, paid attention to. Um, We need a revolution in our worldview Mm -hmm. because, which is exactly what Jesus was trying to do. And, you know, I would like to just put a parenthesis in right here to say, and I've not addressed this during our Sunday lectures, but I want to. 
every beatitude that G, that is put in this database of Jesus teachings every beatitude is a quotation from Jewish scripture mm. every single one the one that's up for this Sunday is from one of the psalms mm -hmm. and so we I think it's helpful to keep in mind that there is a rooting in this Jewish prophetic tradition of justice for those at the bottom, and that's where Jesus was coming from in his teaching. Okay, now, take that teaching into American culture, where we have this worldview of capitalism, where there is never enough we're never satisfied. Yeah. And I, I wonder, and I don't begrudge anybody being handsomely compensated for what they do, but I wonder where the CEO compensation packages that are millions of dollars, how that how that is possibly justified. Right. It makes no sense. Right. I mean, we've started to put a quantity on time, for example, right? That, that the more our time is sought after, the more it is worth. When time is like the exact opposite of quantifiable, you know, and, and spirit is the exact opposite of quantifiable. So it really gets into a values question of what do we value? I think that it's sort of like a distorted value. We do value our time, but we've put a quantity on it as opposed to letting the way we spend our time lead our lives. We've quantified that time and made it viable and made it, you know, mm -hmm. consumable, really. And the impossibility mm -hmm. of consuming time, like if we think about that on a cosmological or on a physics scale, you can't consume time. But we've managed to consume time. You know, it's so interesting that um, the in, in inequitable difference between those who make the most money in the world and those who make the least or none. It's amazing. Now, I'm going to get some of these statistics strong, but um, I will try to speak sounding authoritative so that they'll be right. <laughs> we had a time. Alternative facts, Bill. Yeah, alternative fact. We had a time in, in Texas when we did not have a statewide lottery. Mm -hmm. And the um, the selling point of the lottery was that if we had a lottery, all of that money would go for education, which, of course, it has not done. And I think that people who were somewhat cynical of the whole lottery enterprise from the very beginning said, it ain't going to come out that way, right? At any rate, at the time that was happening, I ran across a study done by a sociologist, I think, from Florida State University, where he had studied the consequences of people who had been big-time uh, lottery winners or money winners, uh, or... or um, like the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, people mm -hmm. who won that, that kind of money. And what he found out was that people deal with money like they deal with money. So that if you had $10,000, 
you dealt with that in the same way that you would deal with $10 million. Okay. So um, he also discovered that there was a level of money that people could make. And I'm, I don't remember what it was. That brought them a great deal of satisfaction and happiness because they could provide them with a place to live, a transportation, with, the, with some of the not finer things. But above that amount, the degree of happiness in that person's life did not increase. Yeah, I, I have read that same thing, and I don't know what that amount is either. Never enough. I'm sure it's changed <laughs> in the last, you know, yeah, right? I mean, wh where do we, and, you know, and then we have like, people as they get old and realize that they're at the last quarter or 10 years or 15 years of their life, realizing I got to get rid of this. <laughs> I got to get rid of this because it's not going with me, number one. And number two, um, whoever it has to deal with this is going to have the, the hell text out of them, really, you know? <laughs> and, and that's, uh, you know, so many people want to avoid the way that the tax system sort of punishes dying with it. Now, here's, here's something that's really quite paradoxical. Mm -hmm. So we live in this culture where the message is, don't ever be satisfied. You can't mm -hmm. be satisfied. You need more. You need more of this. You need a better one of that. You need a newer one of this. Don't be satisfied. Now, ironically, right. Ironically, that is exactly what this beatitude for this Sunday is about. Jesus is saying, don't be satisfied with the way things are. But it's yeah. not about money. It is about how people are treated. Don't be satisfied. Yeah. We need to right. keep working for justice and equity or, you know, what, what we've come to refer to as the community or empowerment and the right. empowering community. Yeah, it's not about money per se. It's about how we direct what it is that is the result of how we consume our time. So how is our time and attention oriented? Is it oriented towards what is just and good? Or is it oriented towards, um, towards me, towards what is good for me? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been thinking about this word a lot. Um, we are kind of disembodied, like we're disembodied from each other. I'm reading this book called The Body of God by Sally McFaig. Do you know who she is? I've heard you quote, quote her. Yeah, she's a feminist ecological theologian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, she, you know, her premise is basically that we've lost this sense of the body, who we are in the body of God, no more, no less who we are in the cosmos that we're actually part of cosmological evolution and then who we are to one another. We've lost that sense of what we began this, you know, 16 week time with, which is interbeing. We do not have a sense that we are interconnected. And so therefore we behave, we live and we spend money as if it is only about me. I, I, we is a big thing to say. I know that not everybody does, but our, all of our values in this culture are directed toward the individual well-being as opposed to the collective well-being. And it's, um, mm -hmm. she says, uh, she 
I, this is interesting because when I was doing the reading part of my, the mind part of my sort of practice today, I read from three different books, little chunks from three different books. I read about Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I read from Sally McFaig and I read from Claudia Rankin. And I was amazed at how each of these things were braiding together today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where Emerson is talking about, in a sense, that how we've lost this sense of the universe in us. We've lost, he doesn't call it the cosmic sense like Teilhard does, but he essentially says that. Like, and to lose that cosmic sense is to lose the fact that we are connected to something greater, to a great spirit, to God, etc. And then Sally McFaig is kind of saying like we've fallen out of love. Love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Wow. Yeah. So we've lost this sense of realness that the other is real. And so therefore we've lost a sense of embodiment. If we can't look at another body and feel that they are as real as we are, then we've, we fall out of love and therefore we move away from the sacred. So she's talking about how to be embodied is the truest aspect of, of the sacred. And then Claudia Rankin, sorry, now I'm like on a tangent, but Claudia Rankin, who is a poet and playwright and a professor who I really like, Josh just brought me this book called Just Us, An American Conversation. And this is so beautiful, Bill. What does it mean to want an age-old call for change, not to change, and yet also to feel bullied by the call to change? How is a call to change named shame, named penance, named chastisement? How does one say, what if without reproach, the root of chastise is to make pure? The impossibility of that, is that what repels? and not the call for change. Wow. Right? So to change, we could actually become pure. But we must heed the chastisement, right? Right. You know, what that, what that reminds me of, and I don't know why we haven't spoken to this before, but we're made the decision that we're going to go through the chapters in Matthew to seek to find guidance now through this time of um, pandemic, through this time of coming to terms with systemic racism. And now I would also say in this time where we are um, trying to come to terms with uh, political chaos that is that exists in in this country and how we're going to do that so um right before these chapters in matthew there is this telling of a parable i take it to be a parable of uh jesus having been baptized by john the baptist goes in the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days And he comes out of that experience saying, I have had this profound experience where I have come into this realization that I am the divine child of God, and so are you. And so are you. And so are you. Yeah. That was, 
That was the key. Now, the reason I say this is a parable is that I don't know, nobody was with Jesus in the wilderness. So I don't know, I cannot imagine him coming out of the wilderness and saying, hey guys, let me tell you about this experience I had where I encountered the devil and beat the daylights out of me. Yeah. I don't think it happened that way. So um, like most of the parabolic stuff in the Jesus narrative, this all comes from Jewish tradition. And I, I want to go back to what you and I were talking about last week, that um, our identity is who we are in sacred mystery. And I love, as I keep saying, I love your way of putting it, who we are embedded in. And the embeddedness goes two ways. Yes. And all of the, the, there were three temptations that were given to Jesus, and they all began with the same thing. If that is your identity, then. And the temptation is a temptation to be narcissistic, a temptation to be powerful, a temptation to be in control. Yeah. And those are all the temptations of our culture. Yeah. All of them are the temptations of our culture. We have, I know it probably takes a lot of narcissism to be a politician, yeah. but we have the most narcissistic president maybe in the history of the country. Lord have mercy. <laughs> and it's appealing to many, many people. Well, we've got then what that appeals to is that very avid sense of individualism. Absolutely. It, it does not appeal to the sense of embeddedness. And where we ended up last Sunday was saying clearly that the word meek is not a single individual term. It's a communal term. It's about being yeah. part of a community. Yeah. Being willing to sort of share the credit, if you will. You know, I think again of Rosa Parks, who, um, you know, in her meek action was a humble action, but it took, as we talked about on our podcast last week, um, practice. She had to engage in a practice of non-reaction, of strength, of pride in herself and her people and who she was fighting for in order to do that very meek action of saying no no right. yeah and as you pointed out to me privately she had a strong spiritual practice yeah so let me ask you a question um yeah. i don't know what label i don't think you and i've ever talked about this i don't know what label you put on yourself but um, I mean by that, I don't know if you call yourself a feminist or what, if you do put a label on yourself and not that, not that you have to. But I would like to, to hear your observation on this. We have lived in this country under a set of rules that have been written by white males. Yeah. And we are in the deep grips of white patriarchy. They, the, the white males wrote rules about both politics and religion, they called it theology and law, that have demeaned women and people of color to this day. How do we come to terms with that white male patriarchy 
So I have two thoughts. One is to answer the question directly, I would say I'm more of a humanist. I think if we put ourselves into the category of feminists or anti-feminists, then we're creating another binary. I am absolutely for the dignity, respect, mm -hmm. and right to be whole of any human being. And I want to extend that. So maybe I'm a holist. <laughs> like I, I also extend that to the ecology that we live okay. in, to the animals and the creatures and the thousands of microscopic things we can't see, right? I want to say billions of microscopic things we can't see. But to address the white male patriarchy, we have to address where it arose from. And it arose from even those like Emerson, like Lincoln, who wrote doctrines about freedom and transcendentalism and, um, and the right to, to embodiment in a free way, had ideals that there was a better race, that the white male race was better. So that comes from, and, and, and those guys too were born into this world, right? They were born into a world where they were given that automatically without question. And I, I think how we deal with it is that we have to get back to the root of it. And maybe it goes as far back as misunderstanding the very basic of the biblical genesis of man and woman. And that is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of our Western civilization, of how um, Judeo-Christian ideology has been formed. And if for the last 2,000 plus years, we can essentially point towards, I want to say even for the last 6,000 years, point towards a, a burgeoning Judeo-Christian worldview, then that misinterpretation of that original story is where white male patriarchy comes from. So we've got to reinterpret the story. Okay, here's a way to do that. Okay. <laughs> the Pope dies and he goes to heaven. I mean, you would expect that the Pope would go to heaven, right? And being the Pope, he just walks right through the pearly gate. But St. Peter reaches out and grabs his robe and pulls him back through and says, oh, wait a minute, not so fast. And the Pope says, what's the problem? I'm the Pope. I should get in. And Peter said, eh, we're not so sure. I'm not so sure. As a matter of fact, God is not so sure. You're, you're going to have a hard time here. And the Pope said, why? And St. Peter said, well, God does not like the way that you have treated women and have denied women to be priests. And the Pope says, really? And St. Peter says, yes, she's really ticked off. <laughs> we have to reconceptualize God. It's right. I, I mean, it's a, to, to call on our friend Michael Moorwood, we have to question everything that we've been taught about what is good and what is not. We may arrive at some of the same places with some things, but this fundamental hierarchy of religious values, of spiritual values that didn't 
that probably is older even than Judeo-Christian. You know, I think about, I was thinking about the Greek statues that represented the sort of perfect person um, in the Greco-Roman times, you know, these marble statues that were young, probably about a 16-year-old male, perfectly sculpted, just the right amount of secondary sex characteristics, so not too big and not too small, you know, and, um, and that was the ideal human. So this has been around for a long time, a long time, even in the time of the Renaissance art. Um, do you know that the artists were not allowed to paint women, female bodies? Well, I did not know that. They used male models and then threw breasts on them. And so you have these Renaissance figures. If you pay attention to many of the great works of the Renaissance, they're muscled and then they have breasts. And so because the models were male. And so we, we have this idea that the woman is associated with embodiment and sexuality and sensuality. And we've said that's wrong because we got so focused on ideology, on purity. And, and so we kind of castigated embodiment and we looked toward mind and we, we went towards spirit as opposed to the embodiment of spirit and all that is, I, you know, that's, that's what I can say is our, 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 our drastic misinterpretation of, of the devaluation of the body and the valuation of the mind, thus the devaluation of the feminine and the valuation of what is masculine. I remember when we were in Florence and saw David, the statue of David. Yeah. There was yeah. a framed review from sometime mm -hmm. in the 1800s that they had put in the museum near the statue of David that said, from the, the art critic that saw the statue and said, mm -hmm. you can go home now. You have seen the epitome of what should be about the human body or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So we got quite a while. So how do we, <laughs> you know, the, the way that Eugene Peterson translates this beatitude that we're going to try to write about and talk about on Sunday is you have to have a hunger and thirst for this yes. stuff. And work up a good appetite for it. I love his translation. Me too. By the way, for those of you who are listening to this and are not aware of it, the webinar uh, where Michael Morewood spoke, that Holly referred to what he had to say, is up on the front page, the landing page of the Ordinary Life website. And mm -hmm. uh, when I wrote the, prepared the summary that went out this morning, I uh, put a link to that landing page. And I had, that was the first time I'd seen that, Holly. And I thought, wow, there is Jackie Lewis in all her glowing, beautiful robe and color and everything yeah. right there. What yeah. screen? She's gorgeous. She sure is. Yeah. That's an attention getter right there. Yeah, so hopefully people will register for that now that that link is live also. So we've got the replay of Michael Morwood and the coming up of Dr. Jackie Lewis. And I ran into Tim Leatherwood today. Thank you, Tim, for all you do. Yeah. And he said that we already have registrations coming in. For Wonderful. Jackie. That's great. So that's great. That's great. You know, I was thinking just as you kind of reread um, Eugene Peterson's version. So... We, 
blessed are the righteous. Okay. Blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God, thus right. equating God right. with righteousness, with justice. And again, and again, it's justice that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Not vengeance, justice. Right. <laughs> so we'll get more into that on Sunday and we'll have all the answers by then, right? <laughs> Even more than we can offer. That's what I, yeah, I think that these are so meaty. They're one or two sentences and they're so meaty. Don't so, be satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bill. All right. See you Sunday. See you Sunday. Oh,